What an incredible privilege to hear God's people sing those words and to hear those words coming from our own lips. That God would give us a heart to sing those words with praise. What a gift. You know, I've often heard people say, talk about how a God would not, God wants a, a kind of choice for us to love Him and an argument against a kind of Reformed view of salvation. But the beauty of Reformed theology is, biblical theology that is, is that it is the very love for God itself that is the gift. It's not that we love God unto a gift of salvation, but it is that very love for God itself that constitutes eternal life that is itself the gift that God works in the heart. So praise God that we love Him, that we have any desire to gather for His praise. And praise God for another opportunity today to gather and to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, It has been a while since we have done this, especially for a church that does it every week. Uh, It it, it feels uh, like it's been far too long. We do appreciate the patience of the congregation uh, working through this over the last several months as elders has been challenging on many levels to think through it, and we recognize that Uh, For some, we haven't moved fast enough. For others, we maybe have moved too fast. Uh, But we do thank you for your prayers, and we ask for your continued patience. We are fallible men trying to lead this local church in the best way we can. And so we ask for your grace and your love and your patience with us. But we are thankful that we've come to a point today where we can celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so most of you, I hope, have seen the video, although I learned earlier that many, some haven't and, and probably many haven't. So we did email out a video giving instructions, and I will touch on that at the end of the service. Basically, it's just step out to the left. There you go. And come down, keep, keep some distance, and the server up front will have on gloves and a mask, and we'll be handing, uh, handing that to you, dropping that into your hands. So we will do that at the end. Praise God that we get to do it again today. If you would please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. As I said last week, some commentators have said this is the, perhaps the hardest passage in all of Romans. And you may read through it and say, why this one? You know, I mean, stuff we've covered so far. And I think it's just difficult to get at what Paul is saying. And Since the objective of all preaching should be to convey the author's intent, it is difficult to to, to get at that and have clarity about that. So I thank you for your patience as I attempt to unravel, unwind, whatever kind of language you want to use, what Paul is saying in these eight verses. Because here's the thing, until we know what Paul is saying, there is no applying Right? I mean, we don't just apply out of the air. We have to understand the content of the scriptures in order that we might see the implications of that content for our lives. And so here we are in a 
uh, a difficult passage trying to understand the logic uh, behind what Paul is saying. Last week, we looked at the first half of this passage, and that was the first four verses. And today we'll cover verses five to eight. The title for these two sermons is The Righteous God of Israel, the God we just sang about. Behold our God. This God's righteousness, his character, is what is in question in this passage. It is what Paul is upholding. So the title for today's sermon is The Righteous God of Israel, part two, looking at verses five to eight. I also want to say as I launch in this morning, I've got a little more introductory material this morning. So if it seems like, have we gotten to those points yet? Uh, or, you know, you're thinking, when are we going to stand and read the Bible? Um, it may be a little later down the road, not too, too late, I hope, but maybe a little later down the road this morning than usual. What I want to do here in a moment is hopefully bridge the gap between last week and this week and, and, and provide hopefully some clarifications on what we covered last week. So here we go. Paul is dealing with objections that flow out of what he had to say in chapter 2. So you're imagining Jewish ears, Jewish listeners, a Jewish audience to the 29 verses that we have in chapter 2. Of course, they weren't written with the verses, but the content of those verses raises a number of questions, understandably, in the Jewish mind. Romans 2 would not have been a comfortable message for the Jewish ear. The Jews are sinners just like the Gentiles. Just as futility, folly, and falsehood characterize the Gentiles, hypocrisy, presumption, and disobedience characterize the Jews. So at the end of Romans 1, Paul wants to hold up the sin of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, the pagan world, if you will. And then in chapter 2, Paul then turns to hold up the sins of the Jews. All are under sin. That's where Paul is headed. That's the main objective of this entire section. All people are under sin and in need of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is Paul's big idea. God will be impartial in his judgment. No special treatment for Jews on account of their Jewishness. The Jewishness of the Jew, Paul argues, will not enable him to escape God's wrath. You know, you think about God's wrath being poured out on the world, you think of the flood, and it's almost as though the Jew uh, sees himself with this massive umbrella. You know, the flood comes, and we know it comes from beneath too, so umbrella wouldn't work, but you get the point. It's as though the Jew has this massive umbrella shielding him or her from God's wrath, that the judgment of God, the flood of God's wrath is coming upon the world, and the Gentiles are just getting swept away, but the Jews are okay. On account of their Jewishness alone, they will escape God's wrath. Wrath. Paul says, not so, my Jewish kinsmen, not so. 
And besides this, the true Jew, Paul will say at the very end of the chapter, which is earth-shattering to the Jewish ear, the true Jew is one who has a circumcised heart. Whether he be Jew or Gentile, the true Jew, or you could say, going along with Romans 9, the true offspring of Abraham in the ultimate sense is a person of faith. Person through the line of promise. Someone who trusts in God. This person is grafted in or a natural branch growing up in. Whether Jew or Gentile, a true Jew in a sense is someone who has a new heart. Someone who is born again. Who has been justified by faith in Christ. Well, understandably, this message led to Jewish objections challenges to Paul's message. And so Paul does not simply stop there and, and, and just keep going. He doesn't, he doesn't just go on to the next bit. Otherwise, we would have him in, in uh, verse 9, which we're going to get to next week. We would have him just continuing his point about all being under sin. Paul pauses and he treats objections. He considers how groundbreaking how earth-shattering his previous message was. And so he, he says, look, I hear some objections in my mind and I want to deal with those. I want to treat those challenges. Challenges to God's character. If Paul's message is true, if the message of the gospel that Paul preaches is true, then these are the sorts of objections that Jewish readers or hearers would bring forward. And they are all objections about God. Objections concerning God's character, his nature, his actions in history, his relationship to his people. So in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, Paul is upholding the righteous character of God, the God of Israel, as he deals with these objections. And this concerns four topics. So as Paul deals with objections... And as he upholds the character of God, he deals with really four topics about God. And the first two we looked at last week, and you'll see those two are not bolded. The second two we're going to look at today. But the first two that we looked at last week were his chosen people and his faithful word. So objections related to these two topics. So let me give you a quick review of each of those. To make sense of today. So first, his chosen people. If what you're saying is true, Paul, after chapter 2, if what you're saying is true, then what advantage is there to being Jewish? I mean, who cares? It, there, it, there's no distinction. It doesn't matter. Paul's answer is that there is much advantage. And you might actually expect Paul there to say, oh, there is no advantage. But he doesn't say that. Paul says there is advantage. And he goes so far as to say, much in every way. And if you want to know what's in Paul's mind, you got to go to Romans 9, verse 4 and 5, and you'll see what he's thinking there. But here he mentions one thing. The Jews have received God's revelation, his very words. 
They are a special people to whom God has revealed himself and made covenants. They are the chosen people of God. They stand under God's word of promise. So go anywhere in the Old Testament and that's what you're reading about. Beginning with Abraham. And really all that we find before Abraham is moving in that direction. They are God's chosen people. That's the first topic that Paul wants to clarify or deal with or or deal with challenges on. The second is his faithful word as we looked at last week when we finished up. So speaking of God's word, Paul, you've just mentioned God's word, his very words. Speaking of God's word, if some, really most, of Israel has rejected Christ as you see it, if most of Israel has rejected Christ in unbelief or unfaithfulness, then what does that say about God, Paul? What does that say about God's faithfulness? His people have just fallen over. Surely, God has now been unfaithful, according to your message, untrue to his word regarding the Jews. Paul's answer, of course God has not been unfaithful. God is always true. This is basic. God is always true, even if everyone else proves to be a liar. God is true to his word of salvation and to his word of judgment. And as the NIV renders the quote in verse 4, God is proved right when he speaks and he prevails when he judges. God's very judgment of Israel for their sin and unbelief is itself a demonstration of his faithfulness. And last week we talked about how when we think about God's faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. We sing that song, right? And we think about all the ways that God has helped us in time of need, rightly so. We think about all the times that we've been downcast and God's lifted us up, all the times we've gotten ourselves into a mess and God has brought us through, all the times that we were stressed out and God took care of it. But we don't think about, immediately at least, we don't think about the discipline. The hardships, the trials, all the the things that hurt and don't feel so nice. We see that God's faithfulness is on both sides. And with regard to his people Israel, God's faithfulness is demonstrated through, yes, his carrying his people through and preserving a remnant, as Paul will go on to say, but also through judgment, as God promised to judge his people. So that's what we've seen so far. But before I move on, I want to offer just a couple of clarifications from last week. So for some of you, last week didn't pose any problems at all. It it was clear. Maybe for others of you, it left you scratching your head, wondering what is all this stuff about Israel and, and, and Romans 9 through 11 and these quotes from Romans 11. So let me make a couple of clarifications that I think are are needed So first, last week I asserted that Paul has in mind the fact that God still sees Israel as his chosen people. Yes, ethnic, not the true Israel uh, or the true Jew uh, who is circumcised in the heart. Yes, that is true. 
Jew and Gentile alike, but that God sees Israel according to the flesh. That is, Israel, ethnically speaking, God still sees Israel as his chosen people. And it couldn't be clearer than we saw in chapter 11, verse 28. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He's clearly there talking about unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Israel. That there is a sense in which they are enemies with regard to the gospel. And there is a sense in which they are beloved. And that's, that's difficult to wrap our minds around. But I just wanted to assert last week that Paul has this in his mind. Paul is writing Romans 3, 1 to 8 with Romans 9 through 11 stuffed in his brain. And so we have to read the two together as well. And the second thing I asserted is that God has a future salvation for all Israel. To quote chapter 11, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. So those were the two things that I said last week, that God sees Israel as an entity and that God has a future salvation in store for Israel in history. So here are the two clarifications I want to make. First is, last week I said that many, even most within the Reformed community, have gotten this wrong. And I think it would be better for me to simply stick with the word many. I think most is probably an overstatement, although I have heard people use the word most. But I think many is probably more accurate. The word most is arguable and doesn't really do justice to the diversity of thought that exists on this subject within Reformed Christianity. So I don't think we could say it's arguable, but I don't think we should say, perhaps, that most of Reformed evangelicals would reject what I've just said, but many would. So let me give you a quote just to kind of fill this out from an issue of table talk uh, in, from Ligonier Ministries on the, on the question of Israel. This is what they say. And by the way, it would be reflective of this diversity even within Ligonier. And also, Ligonier, of course, as many of you know, the ministry of R.C. Sproul is uh, probably one of the most well-known popular expressions of Reformed evangelicalism. So here's what they say. Many Christians believe that the promises to Israel are completely fulfilled in the New Testament church. So this is the view that I was arguing against last week. Many Christians believe this. This position held by many Reformed scholars believes that Romans 11 is not speaking of any special event to take place in the future concerning the Jews as a people, but more generally speaks of individual Jews who come into the kingdom of God during the gospel age. And in fact, Calvin will assert that all Israel in Romans 11 uh, refers to Jews and Gentiles alike, Israel being the church in general. And this was a common view for the two centuries following Calvin. But it goes on to say, this Ligonier article goes on to say, others also, including many Reformed scholars, think differently. They hold that Romans 11 predicts a future conversion of the Jews. 
The great future conversion of Israel may be something that happens just before the Lord's return, or it may be the last link in the chain of events ushering in a time of prosperity before the Lord's return. So there's diversity here. Uh, It's not the case that to be reformed, and I know these labels sometimes aren't helpful, but let me just say this. To be reformed means that you have to have a particular view on Israel and the church, and much less how the end times are going to roll out, right? The two are connected, but not in every single way. And so I just want to make clear that there is diversity, but that many within reformed evangelicalism, as I said last week, have gotten this wrong. So that was the first thing, clarification. The second is that this all Israel does not mean every Jew throughout time will be saved. So I think it's possible that after listening to the sermon last week, you may have come away with thinking, does this mean if all Israel is going to be saved, does this mean that all Jews throughout history are going to be saved? And, And the answer to that is absolutely not. That was the very idea that Paul was refuting in chapter 2. Remember, the Jews had this idea that Abraham is sitting at the gate of hell. He's got his lawn chair pulled up there. He's sitting at the gate of hell. And anyone who comes through who is, is coming on their way to hell, and they're a Jew, they're a circumcised Jew, Abraham just somehow turns them back and gets them up into heaven. That this was a view among rabbis And Paul has, I think, this view and views like it in mind as he writes Romans 2. Of course all Jews will not be saved. This is clear from what it says in Romans 2.9. Look at the language there quickly. Romans 2.9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. So it's clear There will be Jews, many Jews, and many Gentiles, who endure eternally this tribulation and distress. The salvation of all Israel is an event in redemptive history, as Paul describes it in Romans 11. He talks about a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And that now the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Earlier he says there's a a remnant That has remained among the Jews. There's a remnant, a portion of Jews who believed. But for the nation as a whole, there's been a hardening of the heart, a blindening that has happened. And now the fullness of the Gentiles, or the Gentiles are coming in, and there's going to be a point in history when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and then after that, all Israel will be saved. Some sort of event in history, in the future, whereby Israel as a collective whole will turn to Christ as Messiah. So I won't say any more about that, but I did want to make those clarifications because I think all of this is in the background to Paul's thinking in Romans 3. But we're going to get deep into that when we come to Romans 9 through 11. Third, why does all this matter for us? Why am I spending so much time today making all of these clarifications. Why did I bring this up last week? I mean, really? Do we need to do this kind of thing? Just 
just give us some prac apps for life and let's go. No, it's so important that we understand these things. And I want to give you three reasons why this is important for us, why this matters for us. These are not the points for the sermon. These are just some little introductory bits. So first is humility. Why does all this matter for us? Why spend so much time trying to parse it out? First is humility. Here's the thing we need to understand. Church, largely Gentile church, we are not, we are not the end of the redemptive story. We are not the capstone event. There is, this, there is this mindset that all of this Israel stuff was really just to prepare the way. Christ came and there's this inbreaking and this gathering up of Gentiles. And now the fulfillment has come, period. We are the capstone event. And Paul says, no way, no way. Romans 11 says that this kind of thinking is prideful. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul tells a largely Gentile group of Christians. Lest you be wise in your own sight and start patting yourself on the back because you belong to Christ and you've become a descendant of Abraham, remember this, a future salvation is coming for the Jews. The end of the story has not come yet. Redemption has been accomplished and in the future it will be applied in a specific historical way to Israel, whatever that means. Humility, humility. Second implication of this for us is reassurance. Just as God has not thrown his chosen people away, God will not throw us away. Listen to this. What is the implication of seeing the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God who's with those 12 ragtag sons at the end of Genesis, The God who endures all of that sin and complaining in the wilderness. The God who endures the period of the judges. The idolatry during the kings of Israel. Putting to death God's prophets. Throwing Jeremiah in a pit. Killing others. God was patient with his people. He has not thrown away the Jews. And that gives us heart because it tells us that God will not throw us away in our failures. God will not throw his people away. And that's exactly why Paul says, I mean, this really is not difficult. It is not unclear. That is exactly why Paul says in Romans eleven eleven. So I ask, did they, this is Israel, largely unbelieving, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means. Rather, through their trespass, rejection of Christ, largely falling away, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. What's happening right now in the world? In the world, what's happening? The fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. What else is happening? Israel, year by year, decade and century by century, is being provoked to jealousy, to turn to its Christ. God is doing something amazing in human history. And if we ignore it, 
we lose this reassurance. In some ways, I think, we lose a bit of it if we ignore God's purposes with Israel. And then finally, Bible reading. It just gives us a better understanding of the Bible. The way we put together the Old and New Testament is important. And Christians differ on this. How you put the covenants together? How do you put law and gospel together? Uh, what, what is Israel? It, it, are, are Christians part of Israel? Can the church be called Israel? Is there a sense in which that can be the case or not? And how does God relate to Israel today? And then politically, what do we even do with the modern state of Israel? Is that even related to these questions? All of this is important. And I think it helps us read our Bibles better to understand what's going on here. So that's the reason that we haven't gotten to our parent scripture reading yet or the points yet. That's the reason for these two sermons on this topic. And I hope that you will study this further that you'll see the value of these kinds of questions. And Romans 9 through 11, we're going to study it in detail. But I hope you'll prepare yourself for that. So there's the bridge between last week and this week. And today we finish up with verses 5 to 8. Two points this morning, and you see them already. His just condemnation, his inevitable glory. Paul has upheld God's chosen people, or the fact that he chooses a people, His faithful word, and today we're going to see that he upholds his just condemnation and his inevitable glory. So at this point now, if you would stand, we're going to read God's word together. Romans 3, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of God, profitable, perfect, even when difficult. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. I think that's a better translation, so I'll go ahead and use it. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help in this exposition of these verses and that God would apply it to our hearts, that he would work to make it clear providentially and that his spirit would be with us and draw us to himself. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing to be in your word. What a blessing to study it. God, we thank you for its truth. It is truth. We thank you that as we read it and as we meditate upon it, as we study it, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, 
We come to know more of your glory. We come to see more of your character. We come to worship. Knowledge of your word brings worship in a pure heart by your spirit. And God, we just, we want to understand you more. Not that we might be puffed up. Lord, not that we might just find interesting things to think on. But Father, because we want to love you and love our neighbor as ourself. So God, we, we pray that by means of your word, as Jesus said, as he prayed to you, Father, he said, sanctify them by your word. And Lord, we, we desire to be sanctified. We see our sin. Lord, forgive us. And we know that your means of growing us is your word. And so, God, we come now. We ask for your blessing. We pray that it would be clear. We pray that we would hear and we would do. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to look at, the first topic, where there's an objection and where Paul wants to uphold God's character has to do with his just condemnation. Look again at verses 5 to 7. So these three verses are uh, what we need to focus on here. But if our unrighteousness, so try to get the logic in your mind. It's difficult here to kind of put it all together. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The objection that Paul deals with here has to do with the righteousness of God's judgment. That makes sense, right? This entire three-chapter section deals with God's judgment. That's the big idea. Sin, judgment. So Paul wants to affirm the righteousness of God's judgment, the justice of God, particularly in condemning his people, in condemning the Jews, his just condemnation. The Jews have largely been unfaithful, unbelieving. They have rejected Christ. But God has proven faithful, Paul has just told us. And especially as it stands in Paul's day, God has proven faithful in his word of judgment, his judging righteousness. And in that, the righteousness of God has been magnified, has been highlighted. What Paul has just told us is that in God's judgment of the Jews for their sin, for their rejection of Christ, his faithfulness to his word has actually been accentuated. His faithfulness to his word has actually been magnified and made much of. In other words, even the sin of Israel has served to showcase God's righteousness. And just, just let that settle for a minute. Even the sin of Israel has served to showcase God's righteousness, according to Paul's message. God has been glorified as judge through the sin of his people. 
God receives glory when he judges sinners. And the objection that is raised against all of this is how can God, so listen, try to understand the objection that is being raised here at the beginning of verse 5 and on through into verse 7. How can God judge or condemn us? This is, these are Jews speaking to Paul. How can God judge us or condemn us, his people, if our unbelief has brought him glory? Our unbelief has glorified God. Our unbelief has magnified his character, his faithfulness to his word. How can God judge us if this is true? Paul, if our unrighteousness has shown his righteousness, and if our lie has shown his truth, how can God condemn us? This objection is stated in verse 5 and elaborated on in verse 7. And let's just, let's just say this. It, it really is absurd, right? It is an absurd objection. But it is one that Paul chooses to deal with in the letter. He, he wants to deal with this Jewish objection. And you can even see in this objection how the Jewish mind had, had become so perverted with regard to God's intentions. How the Jewish mind had become so presumptuous with regard to their identity and what God owes them. Remember, works righteousness is all about God owing us something, right? We put in the work. We serve God. We tithe mint, dill, and cumin or whatever. And God owes us. He owes me heaven. Because I've, I've done a good job. You know, you think you imagine yourself going through life and you're going to stand before God. You're going to pull out a little sheet of paper. And you know, it won't be a sticky note. It'll be a massive poster board of all the things that you've done for God, and he owes you salvation. Of course he does not. We would have a tiny little sticky note, a tiny little piece of paper the size of a tic-tac. And, and the truth is that even on that tic-tac-sized piece of paper, there would be nothing but impure motives and hatred of God and love of self. There are no good works without Christ. There are no truly, deeply, authentically good works apart from a new heart. But they had so perverted God's grace to his people. So twisted the nature of God's law. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it helps us make sense of this kind of objection. It seems to be so fallacious, so ridiculous, and yet it's there. And Paul deals with it. And so how does he respond? How does Paul respond to this ridiculous objection? It's twofold. It's quite simple. First, he responds as he did to the last objection. By no means, certainly not, God forbid, and all the other plethora of ways that that's been Translate. There's so many ways that people have dealt with that, but it, it is the most emphatic rejection of an idea that you can get. By no means. What you're saying is unthinkable. Just as God could never be unfaithful, <clears throat> so too <clears throat> could he never be unjust. God cannot be unfaithful. 
It is in the very nature of God to be faithful. God is faithfulness, just as God is love. And God is just judge. It's impossible. By nature of the term, by definition, it is impossible for God to be unjust. In fact, Paul hates to even say those words, which is why he adds in verse 5, I speak in a human way. Listen to this. Paul can't even stomach He can't even stand to say those words in the same sentence. And if you read them in the original language, it's literally the unjust, the God. Unjust God? Whoa, I cannot put that. Those those words don't go together. They don't exist in the same sentence, side by side. Paul can't even say it, and he's refuting it. He can't even say it without this revulsion of soul. Where he has to say, I speak in a human way. I speak out of folly to even say those words. I speak out of frailty and folly to make my point. That's what he's saying. And I just want to pause here for a moment as we think about implications of what we're seeing. What are we seeing here in the heart of Paul? We see reverence. We see reverence. And I just want to ask you, is this a key idea in the Christian life for you? There may be a lot of ideas that swirl around in your mind as you think about the Christian life. There may be a lot of ideas in your mind as you teach your children about the Christian faith. But at the heart of all of that, is there this sense of reverence, fear of God? is the way the Bible describes it. Job is described in this way. Blameless, a man who feared God. And here's the thing. Your children may may grow up to say a lot of things about you, but will they be able to say as they grow up and they get older, my mom, my dad, feared God, was reverent with respect to God. That's what we see here with Paul. This reverence. Even as the chosen apostle, if you think anyone could kind of get lax with that stuff, you know, God and I were real close. He sent me on a mission. If anyone could kind of kick back and, and, and presume in God's presence before his face, we would think maybe Paul. No, reverence, reverence. Let us not be casual toward the praise of God's name. Second, Paul responds more substantively at the end of verse 6. He says basically this, look, if your logic holds, then God wouldn't be able to judge anyone. That's Paul's response to the objection. So if you're writing this down, you want to understand where Paul's going, what he basically says in response to this ridiculous objection is, look, if your logic holds, then God would not be able to judge anyone. All Jews know and affirm that God is going to judge the world. That's the background of chapter 2, verse 1. Go back and look at chapter 2, verse 1 real quick. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. That's the very thing that the Jews are doing. It's basic idea in Judaism that God's going to judge the world. 
But the problem with the Jewish mind is this has to do with the Gentile pagans. They're going to get theirs. They're going to get it. These Roman soldiers that have crucified us along the roads, these Roman soldiers who have their thumb on us and all the others that have abused and persecuted the Jewish people and oppressed the Jewish people with their wicked, dirty, pagan idolatry, they're going to get it. That was common, of course. That was, that was a, a basic notion among the Jews. All Jews would have said this, and they were quite happy about it. God is judge. He will judge. Genesis 18, 25, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. Deuteronomy 32, 4, God is referred to as the rock. His, perfect work, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So here's what Paul's saying. If God is going to judge the world in justice, which you all agree, Jews, right? Uh, my fellow Jews, you agree God's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the, the Gentiles. Oh, of course, Paul. Yes, God's going to bring it. Well, then, won't that judgment also bring his glory? Right? Won't God be glorified? According to your logic, if, if unrighteousness brings God's glory, his righteousness into view, and therefore God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, wouldn't that also apply to the Gentile world? Is God not going to be magnified, glorified as righteous judge when he executes judgment on the Romans, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians? Yes. This is Paul's response. Paul says, if your logic is true, then you've just rendered God incapable of any form of judgment at all. Since all judgment showcases God's glory. But before we go there to God's glory, I want to remind everyone that God's judgment of the world is a biblical fundamental. God's going to judge the world. And I don't know everyone who's here this morning, but maybe you just need to hear that freshly. God is the judge. He created this world for His glory. And in the hearts in which He is not glorified, He will execute eternal judgment. The only hope, the only hope for any of us is Christ Jesus. Christ is the means by which we come to move from being under judgment to being free from judgment. And that's the reason after all this explanation, we're in chapter 3, we got 4, 5, 6, 7, and then chapter 8, that glorious chapter, that high point, as I heard Will call it, he preached from a passage there years ago, that high point, that mountain peak passage begins how? There is therefore now, therefore after all I've said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Know this, God's going to judge the world. But know this, in Christ, your sins, my sins, paid for at the cross. God's judgment 
executed at the cross. And, and, and hear this. How much more does this help us appreciate what Christ did at the cross? All this sin that we're reading about. All of this judgment and wrath. This white hot fury against sin was endured by our Savior. He didn't just get beat up at the cross. He didn't just get nailed at the cross. He took upon God's judgment for sin like this, for hypocrisy and presumption and pride, for folly and futility and ingratitude and idolatry, perversion, hatred of fellow man. He took all that upon himself at the cross so that we could be forgiven. Apart from Christ, you will endure God's judgment forever. Don't ignore that. Children, don't wait till you're 10, 12, 18 to trust in Christ. Trust Christ now. Call out to him now. Call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon Christ now. Ask him to give you a heart of faith. Ask him to change your heart, give you true repentance, and turn to him Commit your life to him and put your trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection to forgive your sins. That's the only way. That's the only way. So secondly, as we finish this morning, let's look at his inevitable glory. Look with me at verse 8. Last verse here. And why not do evil? That good may come. Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We've just talked in verse 7 about God's glory. Just as judgment, the judgment of God is a basic biblical idea, so too is God's glory. This is a basic biblical notion, the glory of God. Let me give you a few verses Dealing with God's glory. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Listen to the way God is described. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God is called the glory of Israel. And by the way, that's pretty relevant for what we're discussing right now. That's who God is. He's the glory of Israel. He's also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who he is. The glory of Israel. Isaiah 43, 7, God speaks of people called by my name. Listen to this. Whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The end of all things, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 12, is to the praise of his glory. And listen to this. Romans 1 through 11 is the doctrinal section. Romans 1 to 8, dealing with our salvation. Romans 9 through 11, dealing with God's historical, historical purposes, Jews and, and, and the church and so forth. But at the end of Romans, Romans 12, Paul picks up with practical things. In light of everything you've just heard, in light of everything you've heard, the first 11 chapters, here's the practical stuff. And he's going he's gonna to go through that in chapter 12. Tons of practical imperatives and so forth. But what does he say right before that? At the very end of his doctrinal section, the high point, he says this, Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him 
are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. That's the high point of Romans. It's not actually at the end of Romans 8. It's at the end of Romans 11. As Paul says here in Romans 3, 7, even our sin, listen to this, this is the issue. Even our sin abounds to his glory. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. Our sin abounds to God's glory. Yes, that's the whole point of what's being discussed. Particularly his glory in judging sinners. His glory found in his justice. Let me say it this way, one way or another, one way or another, God will be glorified in all things. You know what? We, we talk about glorifying God. We talk about living for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. But here's the thing. Nobody steals God's glory Everything that happens in the history of the world will ultimately be turned by this God to his glory. Everything. God's glory is inevitable. And let me just say here, by way of implication, this unshakable glory is worthy of all of our praise and confidence. Here's the thing. God will be glorified through you, Christian. We fail. We stumble. We won't fall like Israel. We stumble. We fail. We sin. But God will be glorified through his people. He will glorify us in order to glorify himself. That's what glorification is all about. We think about, you know, okay, we're going to get to heaven. We're going to be raised. Our new body is going to be raised, united with our soul, new heaven, new earth. We're going to be glorified. No, who's going to be glorified? God is going to be glorified through what he's done for you through Christ. God is glorified in our glorification. God's going to get his glory. And so, the ridiculous objection is brought forward that if God is glorified or if good comes through sin, then we ought to give ourselves over to sinning. This is the big idea. So if you're taking notes, kind of catch this. This is the objection. Because God is going to be glorified through sin, we ought to just give ourselves over to sin. Why not do evil that good may come? The good of God's glory resulting from human evil justifies human sin. That's the ungodly error that Paul addresses here. The good of God's glory resulting from human sin turns around and justifies that sin. If, if God is glorified through judging our sin then our sin actually is good. Man, that's perverse. Man, that is absolutely perverse. Perverse. And there's a similar mindset here with regard to God's grace. We find that in Romans 6. A similar mindset. When people say, God will use my sin for his glory in order to justify their sin. Are you doing that today? 
Oh, God's going to forgive me. Oh, just embracing sin, just embracing sin, continuing in sin, because God's going to be glorified in giving you forgiveness later. That's a wicked heart. That's a wicked heart. That's a wicked mindset. So if right now, right now, this very day, you're here by God's providence and you're perpetuating sin and you're thinking it's okay because God's going to forgive me and it's going to result in his glory, that is wicked. That is wrong. It is perverse. It is twisted. It is satanic. And it may very well suggest that your heart is still hard and dark and undone before this holy God. It is so perverse, it is so wicked, it is so wrong that it doesn't even deserve a response from Paul. Do you see that? Paul doesn't even respond to it. He doesn't even give an argument against it. He simply says their condemnation is just. It is so manifestly wicked. It is so manifestly wrong that it doesn't even deserve an argument. There's so many things in our world like that. We want to give, a, want to give an answer. We want to explain why it's wicked to murder babies in the womb. We want to give an answer for why marriage is between a man and a woman. But the truth is, these things are manifest, obvious. And we see here a similar attitude. Their condemnation is just. Let me give you a quote regarding human sin and God's glory from Calvin. Of all people, John Calvin is probably one of those who's probed and understood this in a cogent way. Calvin says this, Evil cannot of itself produce anything but evil. And that God's glory is through our sin illustrated is not the work of man. You don't glorify God by sinning. That's not the work of man, but the work of God, who as a wonderful worker knows how to overcome our wickedness and to convert it to another end so as to turn it contrary to what we intend to the promotion of his glory. That's the sovereignty of God. He can take the most wicked sin and he can turn it for his glory. But that doesn't say anything about the heart and conduct of the sinner. Joseph says the same thing in Genesis 50, verse 20. Remember, listen to the language. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You might be tempted to think after reading the Joseph story that the fact that God was orchestrating all that happened and that God had a purpose and God had an intention somehow gets the brothers off the hook. Not so. Not so. They were responsible for their sin. What they meant for evil. It was evil. Pure evil. Nothing but evil. God meant it in his sovereignty for good. 
And not only does Paul treat this objection, but there are actually those who accuse him of preaching this very thing. Let us do evil that good may come. People who think Paul is saying that, misunderstanding his gospel of grace, they slander and speak against Paul. And this is what Paul will pick up in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So there's a temptation to think. We sin, God's grace is greater. His mercy is greater. Yes and yes. And praise God. Praise God that that's true. I mean, if it weren't true, we would make a mess of our lives. We would never get to heaven if it depended on us. Never, ever, ever. God's grace abounds. His mercy abounds over our sin. But this can never be used as a license to sin, to flirt with evil. And some are thinking that Paul's gospel of grace means just that. I finish with a quote from the early Christian theologian Origen. He says this, This is an argument raised by unjust people against the Christian faith. They blaspheme us even more by suggesting that because we believe that God's truthfulness abounds in the falsehood of men, and that his justice is confirmed by our unrighteousness, we also believe that we should do evil so that good may come of it, and that we should tell lies so that God's truthfulness will shine out even more clearly because of it. But in claiming that this is what we think, they are blaspheming us as if these things were somehow the logical conclusion of our beliefs. But in fact, the logic of our beliefs does not accept this line of reasoning because we understand that God is a just and true judge. It is precisely because we've come to trust in the God who is our judge that we know such things are wrong. That we know to flirt with sin, to play with sin, presuming on God's grace is wicked because we must stand before him one day. So we live in and through Christ, always before the eyes of this heavenly judge, who is our heavenly father, faithful and true, righteous, and doing all for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would it settle in our hearts? Would it help us understand what will come in weeks to come? We thank you, Lord, for sanctifying us by your word. We pray that your spirit would be with us today as we meditate on it this week, as we discuss it, that you would help us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.